It's very nice to see you, Nancy. It's lovely to see you. It has been, honestly, weeks. Weeks and weeks. Yeah. A really, really long time. We've been on holiday. I've been ill. I know. <laughs> I've been to Edinburgh. It's been I've been to Venice. I've been to Venice. Oh I've been God. to Spain. I haven't been abroad for... Well, I haven't been abroad with the family for four years, and so that was quite an adventure. Yeah. And I kept having to remind myself, people do this all the time. Yes, but it is. There is something. Just because it's literally foreign and slightly <laughs> scary for me. Other people do it all the time and they don't blink and it's absolutely fine. So I had to really sort of put my big girl pants on. But and... it is, that is one of the, I think, one of the lingering effects of COVID that um, I went to Venice. I went to the dance Biennale in Venice. And I, you know, a bit like you, kind of had to keep pinching myself yeah. and going, you know, I know how to do this. I know how to do airports. I know how to do <laughs> tickets, yeah. you know. And, but there is a, a sort of, yeah, there's an oddity. It's, it's like you, well, I have completely got out of the habit of doing it. I know. Well, the kids, I mean, bless them, because it was just me and them. So that was interesting. And um, and I had to really sort of be very, very grown up all the time. And we took little bags, so we didn't have to do the whole luggage thing. And we were really, yeah, we planned good. it all. And it was, it was great. But the thing I hadn't accounted for was them witnessing me having got much more scared of flying in the last few years and how I had to be really careful because, of course, they watch you. Even though they are young adults, they're watching you to see what the realms of, you know... Yeah, what they should think about it. ...behaviour are and if you're scared, should I be scared? And, and, you know, know, but they were genuinely excited. But Artie, my 12-year-old, was explaining to me as we took off the science around the safety of aeroplanes <laughs> in order to try and calm me down. And I was like, I'm really sorry, it's really not helping at all. Artie and, <laughs> and I should get on because I, I remember years ago I read an article in The New Yorker um, about how to survive a plane crash. Oh, and God. I have ever since then followed its lessons. I, I mean, it was a fascinating article because it was one of those things that said, you know, that, you know, when the plane crashed on the Hudson, and in fact, I oh, think yeah, everybody yeah. survived, but, you know, the people who had the greatest probability of the people is sitting in certain seats. So I have always followed all of that. And when we're not, when we're and not on near air, the front, get, you're better off no, sitting in the middle. In the middle. Middle. Okay, well, we were fairly near the middle, and on the way back, <laughs> we were the we were one seat away from the exit, and because it was uh, EasyJet, other budget airlines are available. The the um the people who were sitting in the seats next to the exit, the air steward came over and said, in the in the case of emergency, you will be the nearest to the exit, and therefore you will have to be in charge of opening that exit and following the instructions in order to get people off the plane. <laughs> and you could see these people. Just going, what the fuck? Yeah, that's always me. I really, really don't want that responsibility. No, I, I'm there. Then, I've, I've read the diagrams. <laughs> I know how to open the door. Oh. I'm getting the people off. Oh, yeah. Anyhow. Um, yeah. It's a good, <laughs> but now we're back. And we're yes. back with this episode, this catch-up episode yeah. of As the Actress Said to the Critic with me, the critic, Sarah Crompton. And with me, Nancy Carroll, the actress. It's very nice to be back. So yeah. let's talk about um, cultural things we've yeah. done while away, rather than just a terror of aeroplanes. Yeah. I have been to the Edinburgh Festival. Amazing. And you have been to? I went to Downing Street. I was very kindly invited along to um, a celebration of British theatre at Downing Street, organised by Rufus Norris and Kate Vara. Um as a celebration, I can't remember the exact 
number of years, but the the law that allowed the National Theatre to be established. Okay. So I, when, oh. I don't know, would that have been 60 years ago? 60, I think it was 65 Six, years. 65, when, uh, let's, let's not something even say because we'll get it wrong. Something like that. But, forgive me, um, it was the most brilliantly organised and extraordinary the, what they had done. They, you know, invited all sorts of... Um, interesting people I, I don't necessarily include myself in that interesting but I w- happened to be there which is very nice um, you would have been interesting I, I'm so sure interesting. you would have been I interesting. just weighed down with my own interestingness no, it was um, they what they'd done is they had um, basically made each room that had been devoted to the event uh, representative of each department that creates a production at the National at the or, National Theatre right. or, or Theatre in general there were lots of other people involved there uh, from projects at the National Theatre is either leading or involved right. in, which was fascinating. And, and there were some wonderful people that um, had the privilege of chatting to. And and so they had a, a room um, devoted to set design, another to uh, choreography and then to rehearsal and then to costume. And it was fantastic, organised by a number of people, uh, including the brilliant uh, Joe Cloran, who's a stage manager at the National, but also gets involved in the Riverside shows and stuff. I mean, right. she's amazing. Um, and did Rufus make a speech? Did he made what was... a brilliant speech. He's so fantastic. And he was very politic and very grateful for the support that the government had given them during COVID and that their continued support of the National and... Um, that their art policy and various other things, but also saying there were still huge amounts of work to be done. And then the culture secretary, who has been the culture secretary for about five months, also made a speech um, saying that, that they were very pleased with their support of the national and they had changed the terms recently of the loans that they right. were able to give to the theatres during COVID, um, which made it easier for them to pay that money back. Okay. Um, anyway, that's a whole other thing. But the, but I then... Um, did you see the Prime Minister? Did you I see did our... see the Prime Minister. <laughs> um, apologies to anybody listening who's a massive supporter of the Prime Minister. I'm not one of his greatest fans. Um, and we were moved through the building to get to the event in sort of various air pockets of security. No, don't go any further, please. And somebody very important walked past and then we were allowed another few stairs right. up and eventually... And by the time I got to the top of the stairs, almost at the party, he was there talking to Kate Vara on camera and talking about how proud they were of their arts policy and that it's something particularly close to his heart. And then the camera switched off. Kate went one way and he was there talking to one of his aides and he turned around and I heard him say, right, five minutes, whistle stop. Right, which I, I, I'm I, going to make be nice to him and say, I guess you do if you're prime minister. You but, are prime yes. He's but, a very busy man. But I thought, say. okay, yeah. I've just confirmed my <laughs> deep, deep dislike of you. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry, I'm sure you're yeah. a very nice man no, in well. real life. But I, yeah, I struggled in that moment. I think it's really interesting because I think one of the, I mean, I know that the government did bail um, the arts out in COVID, but it didn't bail it out nearly as much as they did in Germany or indeed where they just kind of put so much money in or indeed in America where they actually did support 
um, Broadway and the very small public sector yeah. kind of massively in a yeah. way that they didn't do here and they aren't paying back no. which we are yeah. and I think um, yeah I think there's a lot of lip service to the arts really which um, I'm glad they make the lip service but I wish it went a bit more beyond that I know well we went we then sort of went into the garden which is where they were sort of handing out canopies and everybody was chatting and the, the national did a, a bit of the witches which is about to open which okay. was amazing um, and then Rufus made his speech and then everyone was milling around I then started chatting to somebody who made the mistake of asking me, did I have any notes for their arts policy? <laughs> I won't tell you exactly what I said, because I sort of got a bit hot and sweaty and rather angry, really, and possibly went a bit too far. But one of the things I said was, you know, given the circumstances of a lot of the government spending, the fact that they made loans to theatres and not grants... And these are loans that ultimately, given their size, which is around 25 million to the globe yeah. and about 19 million to the national, for example, will cripple them yeah. trying to pay it back. I, I don't see how that is fundamentally supportive of the arts. Yeah. It's a business proposition and not one that is very well balanced. Yeah, and I do think, so my, the where this sort of feeds into the Edinburgh Festival is that I, um, I, I had a very nice time at, at Edinburgh in Edinburgh and I'm going back but um, one of the things I was conscious of was how thin things are yeah. wearing so you know Edinburgh itself obviously has had to come back after Covid and I think there's a lot of anxiety around how the performers particularly are being paid you know yeah, the, yeah. and how much money people are making and student productions are going up and you know losing a lot of money and trying to find an audience yeah and I think all of that there is kind of anxiety around how Edinburgh is run and how the fringe is run my anxiety came from somewhere different which was I'm always really conscious when you think about you know looking back I, I never think it's kind of absolutely hope, helpful to look back and say oh when I first went to Edinburgh yeah, but yeah. I'm going to do it when I first went to Edinburgh <laughs> I saw um, Merce Cunningham Dance Company in an Edinburgh gym I saw the Berliner Ensemble I saw um, people on the fringe who went on to be famous I saw an awful lot of serious theatre yeah and um, I found when I was going back this time that what bothered me about it though I had a lovely time and I saw some really good stuff which I'll talk about but I, I felt that the level of ambition was lower yeah and I think that's partly because the nature of festivals has changed so a lot of the things in the international festival in fact are going somewhere else yeah and um so it's not quite as special as it was the idea that you could only see the Berlin Ensemble yeah or, yeah. or the Marley Theatre in Edinburgh and you had to go so that that's part of what's changed but the other thing that has just changed is particularly for younger theatre groups younger writers you just see how limited their ambition has to be you know yeah. it's at the only production outside the Travers that I saw on the fringe that didn't have a cast of two or one yeah was an American production called 17 minutes which was about school shootings which actually had a cast of six people who played different roles and they didn't double and I thought oh my goodness this is really and it was a political play essentially yeah, yeah. it was about based on a real event but it was quite hard-hitting and um, political about gun violence and its effects 
and its effects on a whole community. And I thought that's really interesting to me that it's, an, you know, a, an American company that's coming over. And I don't think it's just that I chose badly, though I'm sure that lots of people listening to this will say, you know, you chose badly and you could have seen different things. I saw some really, really good things, um, but they, they were smaller scale than I remember seeing. And I felt that people... Yeah, we're being a bit constrained, really, somehow yeah. by by economics and by the need to just kind of get an audience. Yeah, you know, not go anywhere too deep or too scary or I don't know. I'm still processing it as an experience, really. Well, it's interesting. I mean, we've talked before about how expensive it is for companies to go there and stay. I mean, it was all, you know, when I was there in the '90s as a student, we all sort of slept on floors and bunked up and you know lived on pot noodles and stayed up all night and it had a sort of chaos that was accessible it was yeah. there you know it was it was made easy to be there because that's what they wanted they wanted everybody to turn up everybody to muck in you had slots that went on from eight o'clock in the morning till sort of you know midnight if not beyond and you just grabbed whatever slot whatever place was available and the streets were alive yeah. with a sort of hunger, mm. hunger for audiences, but hunger for to create. And I think possibly post-COVID, possibly before COVID, possibly with the whole nature of um, theatre being made more corporate and risk becoming part of, you know, decision-making, It a lot of that's gone. Yeah. It, it, time and COVID and capitalism and everything else has eaten away at the edges of it and it's made it self-conscious and yeah. it's too expensive and people don't just throw caution to the wind and get in a van and go, I know, I've got a really good idea, let's go to Edinburgh yeah. and let's try something. Yeah. You can't do that, you can't try something because yeah. you've got lots of people going, oh no, that won't work. I did, I did hear some brilliant stories. I think people do still do the whole, you know, um, uh, sort of uh, you know cheap accommodation all the rest of it yeah i did hear some brilliant stories about people actually sharing a bed you know so oh, doing right, the, yeah. like the um yeah, kind of um workers of old where somebody would be sleepy in the morning and somebody would be sleeping oh, yeah, okay. depending on what time the show was but the key difference is that it's so expensive yeah so that even if you're doing that even if you're doing it at a really minimal um in, in a really minimal way, then you're still spending, yeah. you know, up to £10,000 for a run at the fringe. And unless you've got somebody backing you yeah, and a production yeah. company prepared to share that load, it's really hard. And I think it's particularly affecting drama, really, because, you know, that it's just really, really expensive and difficult and yeah. you're unlikely to be supported. You know, the, I don't know how many shows, I think there are 8,000 shows and the tickets are expensive for people to come. And I, I so I, and, and I think you're exactly right that, that there's a slight self-consciousness, a worry yeah. has entered theatre making. I, it, it feels to me, I mean, I, um, the shows I liked best were shows where I felt that somehow both the authors had been liberated from writing anything except what they wanted to write. Whereas yeah. a lot of things I saw, I admired and I liked, but I felt there was a kind of need to, 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 
to say certain things somehow that, or to fit in a certain mold. Yeah. So that one of the shows I really, really loved was um, called Bullring Techno Maker Jams, which is um, which won the, the uh, Bruntwood. Oh, brilliant. Uh, I know, brilliant title, which I never remember. And it won the Bruntwood um, Playwriting Prize for yeah. Nathan Queeley Dennis, who wrote it. And he performed it. And I mean, he's brilliant as a performer as well. Yeah, it's yeah. a monologue. And I, I loved it. I loved it particularly because it wasn't really about anything. It was a love letter to all kinds of things, particularly to love itself, to the idea of love and to, I felt, to love of Birmingham, which is where he comes from, and and kind of love of his family and love of dancing and techno. And it, it just had a kind of vivacity to it that knocked me away. I thought it was it's smashing. But what I also felt was I really want to see him write a big play about Birmingham. Yeah, yeah. You know, because he obviously feels something's really strongly about how the city works and the culture of the city. And I thought, you know, I hope somebody gives him some money and some time and says, you know, have 10 characters. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the other one I really did like was, which not everybody liked, was was kind of completely sort of mad farce by um, Isabel MacArthur, who's had quite a lot of success with Pride and Prejudice, sort of. Oh, yes. Which did, the Criterion, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, the Criterion, which was a really funny take on Pride and Prejudice. Yeah. And this was called the Grand Old Opera House Hotel and it was on at the Traverse and it did have a big cast. Um, well, relatively big cast, I think five or six. But what was extraordinary about it was it it was so bonkers that you felt it was something that she'd kind of wanted to do for a long time. And it had a kind of, um, here I am with this crazed idea, which was about a very corporate hotel, which had been an old opera house. And the plot essentially allows the play to turn into an opera yes and it's it's not to everybody's taste a lot of people didn't like it at all but I I did love its kind of idiosyncrasy idiosyncrasy really boldness it sounds like it was bold yeah and so you know it was great but I, I I I came away slightly bothered by um by something I think you raised at Downing Street of just the sense that if you if you take money out of education in schools, if you make drama seem unimportant, then it's much harder for people to find it as a, a source of expression in the same yes. way or as a source of political change. Well, or... I, did, I didn't say I need to sort of just to qualify that the, the other bit of me going for the jugular of this poor, unassuming political strategist, um, was that I said that, you know, that he'd killed off the next generation of state-educated practitioners by taking art and music and drama out of most primary schools. In fact, I said dead at the root. He went, oh, that's a bit strong. And uh, and then I sort of warmed to my theme from that point, <laughs> at which point he couldn't run away fast enough. But that was that was yeah. the, you, what yeah. you're mentioning. Yeah, and I, I mean, you know, good on you. And, and Well, I don't the... think they'll have me back, but... <laughs> Oh, well. But it is, it is, it is a worry because, you know, we are a society that's always prided ourselves on creativity, on the formation of um, the National Theatre and of using um, drama as such a kind of means of expressing ourselves, really. Yeah, and I yeah. think it is a real worry if that isn't acknowledged by the 
politicians, but also, you know, you and you begin to see it. I feel I begin to see it a bit. Yeah. And I'm still enjoying loads and loads of things. I've seen some fabulous things. But, yeah. um, you know, I saw The Effect at the National Theatre, which is a great play by Lucy Preble. Yeah, and beautiful. given a brilliant production by Jamie Lloyd. But Lucy Preble, of course, hasn't written a play for five years because wow, yeah. she's writing Succession and... You know, is there another Lucy Preble round the corner? It, it, yeah. It's all just slightly bothersome. Yeah. It, I mean, it is tough. And there are, I mean, it's, I, I don't mean to be sort of gauche or generalising by saying things are dead at the root because there are lots of extraordinary people trying to change that. It It feels that they're having to work terribly hard, these amazing individuals, because the culture of change without government support and understanding is really, really hard for them to do it yeah. almost single-handedly. And, uh, you know, there were some amazing people there. I met a wonderful woman uh, who is working as part of the education department at the Leicester, Leicester Curve um, and a part of a sort of network of regional theatres who are using um, education in theatre to help uh, sort of teenagers and kids of often underprivileged backgrounds from the community around those theatres to use stories to, or use their stories to create work, but also that the therapy of realising that their experiences are valid, yeah. that their voices are valid, and that if they've had a good time, that that is something to talk about. If they've had a bad time, that's something to talk about. And there will be someone who will listen and there will be somebody who's been through a similar experience and it's only by communicating those ideas, sharing them, writing stories about them, performing those stories in many different capacities that we are able to move on and and uh, experience the feeling of universal experience that theatre gives us that you sit yeah. in an audience and we go oh my gosh somebody else has been through what I've been through yeah but and it's also the idea of it and that and this is something else you're conscious of in Edinburgh is that the idea of it that it is a good career yeah you know that all the people who make a theatre that it's not it's not just the actors on the stage or the writers which you know or the directors which is what we tend to talk about yeah. but it's every single set builder furniture maker yeah designer um lighting guy you know lighting woman you know the whole thing that idea that it, it's it's a, a range of, of of tasks and jobs that are well, actually this, fulfilling uh, and interesting aren't they yeah well absolutely i mean the other thing that i've done since we've seen each other is the the mama exhibition the art show of many art uh, actors make art which, which was did. lovely which we came to see it yeah it was, it very was nice. but, they, but what's brilliant Full of art uh, uh, well, it was, it was, it felt like it was something bigger than us. It was bigger than that collective. It had a, and the, the private views that took place over three nights at, in Brixton, downstairs at the department store we did at the beginning of July, was, we had 30 artists who were all uh, actors and who had their work on the walls, but they, their work sat alongside the works of uh, Clive Francis and Noel Coward and um, John Lithgow and Tony Sher and people so that we felt that we were sort of, that there was a story that we yeah. had on those yeah. walls as well. What then happened, partly because of the collective response of everybody that came, including yourselves. Very nice, very, um, very nice. Time. It was lovely. Loved it. Um, but also then getting more, you know, involved with the charity that we were supporting, the Theatre Artists Fund. As you realise, actually, there is something, there's a magic in community. 
and I don't mean that in any wanky way, I mean it in, in all seriousness, that what everybody felt was that that work had been made in isolation and that quite a lot of them had to make an emotional leap to think that something they had created in isolation was valid enough or interesting enough to put on a wall and for us to say collectively that that is art. Yeah. So then there's the whole question of what is art? And you think, well, actually, the world commodifies it. Commodifies. Commodifies, thank commodifies you. Commodifies it. Commodifies it, but for us it's a language. So for us it's just a way of communicating, but then the world says, well, what's it worth? What do I pay for it? And that was a that's a struggle. But then there's the whole thing. Lots of the actors that came who were friends of the people that had put work on the walls were like, well, actually, what you need to be doing is going to drama schools and saying, we did this as a whole. We didn't wait to be asked to do it. We came together as a community of creative people and said, we all do this thing. And if we did it together, then we could potentially create something that's interesting and then has a sort of hub quality that has its own momentum. And yeah. that's what happened. And as a message to the next generation, the sort of baton passing to say, you can do whatever you want and you don't have to wait to be asked. And if you have a story to tell or if you have an image you want to put on the wall or you have a piece of music that's in your head that won't go away, yeah. write it down, yeah. make it, paint it, you know, put it on a stage and I don't mean in a sort of aren't we marvellous but it's it's just important yeah, it's an important yeah. thing and what the theatre artists sorry the, the, the theatre <laughs> artists fund are wanting us to do it again next year because they're about to double in size the work that they do and they create basically funded places for people wanting to join the profession oh, brilliant yeah. so they are uh, through philanthropy and support and spreading their message, um, creating positions for people in theatres that without their help, theatres wouldn't be able to, to create as a job position. And that's in every department. That's brilliant. That is so brilliant. But it, but they are extraordinary. Yeah. And, and you know, everything you're saying, I mean, the other, the other thing I spoke to this amazing woman, Lena, about from Leicester uh, Curve, was that... Um, that she had been part of a special production of Hamilton that a lot of people were invited to from various schools. And at the end, all the actors and all the crew and all the carpenters came out onto the stage and explained what it is that they did and how they got to do that. And that when they were at school, they didn't know that that job existed. And they, they were just basically saying, anyone can do it. And yeah. you have the right to try. Yeah. And Which that, is great. It's an extraordinary yeah. Sorry, I've gone on a bit. No, no, not at all. And I think, I mean, I think, you know, you come back from your holidays and you think, um, why don't I live in Venice? I mean, one of the main things I think. But <laughs> I also think, um, I wouldn't like it really, too watery. Yeah. But um, I also think that there is a kind of, um, you come back and you look at what you're doing and what you're thinking about. And I think one of the things that um I note, and it, it takes me into something else I just want to talk about before we finish, which is Michael Boyd. Oh, yeah, of course. Who um, sadly died um, while we were away. Yeah. He was the RSC. Yeah. The RSC, I think, is interesting because, like the National Theatre, it comes from this great spurt of 60s idealism about right. what makes good society. And yeah. we, we might talk about that another time. But there was this idea that, that culture is part of what makes good society and that, Access to culture 
um, is vital. And and so you and I are both kind of hugely on the side of that. And the RSC comes out of that. The National Theatre comes out of that. Yeah. And and Michael Boyd, I, I just do want to kind of, for me, I want to pay tribute to him that I, you know, when people say, what's the point of the theatre? I quite often think about his productions and specifically, yeah. I think, about his... Um, his later thing when he was running the RSC he'd done amazing work at the Tron and other places and Coventry actually yeah. where I came from um where I worked for a bit but he he at the RSC he did the Shakespeare histories yeah. as um a, as a series and I went and saw it over three days and it was honestly one of the great experiences of my life not wow. just of my theatre going life because suddenly it was a wonderful production. It was so intelligent. It was so communicative. But also it was it felt important to my understanding of the country in which I live. Yeah. Because Shakespeare's histories, if anything, is central to your understanding of that. Shakespeare's histories are and and um, you know, that's why they're still taught, that's why they're still studied. There are all kinds of issues around them. Yeah. And not least that they're not entirely true, obviously, but to see the canon of them, to see yeah. the great run of them, the great arc. And it made you feel that theatre was just so thrilling. And I never really knew Michael Boyd. I met him once. Yeah. But I just kind of mourned him incredibly. Yeah. And you did know him, didn't you? And Joe worked with him a number of times. I never had the, the privilege of working with him, but I met him when Joe was working with him. And he was always, he, he was an enabler. And it's been really interesting reading people's tributes to him. And Joe would have literally run miles over hot coals to work with him. And it was a great tragedy for him that they were working on a musical together that um, I think went on. It may have been this year or last year that that uh, called Saving Grace. Yes. Based on the film that... Uh, um, Brenda Brelethin had done originally and they were doing musical of it with sort of shanty style music written by Katie Tunstall and um, they'd done a workshop of it initially on Zoom and then maybe one other version but then very sadly Michael got it the cancer right. had come back and he had to pull out and and then Joe was no longer part of it and actually it's it, the reason I tell the story is is that Joe could only imagine himself even attempting to do that because it's one of those things that I mean I think he's got a beautiful voice but he he doesn't imagine himself in that world but because he loved Michael so much yeah. and because Michael said to him I want you to be part of this and now can't imagine anybody else playing that part Joe wanted to be good enough yeah. for him yeah and so started having singing lessons and stuff and that's and all of the messages that I've read seem to be about Michael's sort of pushing people yes. in a way that initially annoyed them <laughs> but but ultimately allowed them to grow yeah. that retrospectively they realized that he had made happen yeah and that it, joe he said that he always did this thing in rehearsal where he'd just literally come up to you and sort of squeeze your shoulders and just go you're fucking beautiful i fucking yeah. love you and you're just all so mute. You're just all so beautiful and amazing. Yeah. And it isn't, you know, actors will do pretty much anything for food and appreciation. <laughs> <laughs> 
you know, we all know we don't need vast amounts of money. It's nice when it happens. Yeah. But if somebody comes up to you and looks you in the eye and says, you're fucking amazing. Sorry to swear so much. Um, and I and that's what he did. He inspired enormous love and bravery and warmth in people. And when he made Joe an associate artist at the RSC at the end of his tenure, Joe just sobbed yeah. because he said, this world makes actors feel like wallies most of the time. We're we're accused of sort of flibbity gibbet, you know, with lovies behavior, lovies, all the rest of it. But when people see you and realize, you know, that there's ridiculous stupidity in our occupational choice, but then there is magic yeah. and that there is transformative powers you know, that we access on a good day and, and utter dire treacle wading bollocks on our, <laughs> on bad days. But that but that you know, that Michael was one of those people that you felt saw you and yeah. he, and he inspired unbelievable loyalty and courage in people his whole life. And oddly, I mean, you know, as I say, not knowing him at all yeah. and not really having heard you tell those stories, you knew that sitting in the audience. Yes. So that whatever he created on a stage had a kind of alchemy yeah. that you you felt that he had seen the people he was working with. He had seen the work he was making. Yeah. He understood it. He had a view of it. And he was, and he'd worked a lot in Russian theatre, yeah, hadn't he? Yeah. And, and that had affected how he treated yes. the theatre as almost this sacred space. Yes. And, um, you know, I didn't see like Peter Brook's early stuff, which people talk about having the same effect, but I did see Michael Boyd's and I'm very, very glad that I did because I do feel that he, he created you know, absolutely the best of theatre yeah. and absolutely the kind of inspirational qualities that we've been talking about yeah. throughout this podcast. And is it, but it's interesting as well, that thing of having a, a foreign cultural sensibility in the British space yeah. and what that does to us. And we're very quick to claim it as our own, but it isn't. Hours. You know, he had a Russian sensibility. You know, when we've talked about Tom Stoppard, we claim him as a, a British writer, but he's not a British writer. He has all that extraordinary sensibility of his European, yeah. of his European ancestry and, and early upbringing. And, you know, the, the, or even like complicity and the fact that, you know, they all trained under Lecoq and the, it is something other yeah. and it's expansive and celebratory. And we need a bit more of that, yeah, really. Yeah. And, and and actually to know that it's a power that should be relished and not diminished. And uh, I, and yeah, I'd like a bit more of that at Edinburgh. So I'm just going to say that. Yeah. Next year's festival, a bit more major European fest. Yeah, it's Theater. just a bit of it, mess. It, it's, yeah, it's sort of, even if it doesn't all work. I mean, in fact, that there have been some European theatre, but it's all slightly, it's not quite that. <laughs> it's yes. slightly different. We need and it, less of commodifying. Less, less commodifying, commodifying and more just throwing caution to the wind and I know that's expensive and easy to say but it is it's something in its essence that's what we're going to celebrate on yes. this uh, this uh, first podcast back from our holiday of throwing caution to the wind yeah and that's a good note to end on I think so that's goodbye from me Nancy Carroll the actress and goodbye from me Sarah Crompton the critic <laughs>